Now with the holiday season over, have you ever wondered and asked yourself, so what was the big deal about Christmas? Who is Jesus Christ, and what is so special about Christianity? Well, we'll discuss all that and more today at IBC Topics. Hello and welcome from IBC Topics. This is an audio discussion ministry from Emmanuel Bible Church. Today's topic is, What is so special about Christianity and its message? We're here today with Pastor Nam Park of IBC. And so the question that we want to start off to ask is, What is Christianity and what's so special about its message? Well, I think Christmas is the perfect time to speak to the identity of Jesus Christ. What Christianity is in its very essence, is the message of a Savior, is the message of Jesus Christ and Him crucified so that He might pay the price of our sins. And uh, if you think about the uniqueness or the why, why it is so special, this is the only religion that teaches that God, who desires for us to be right in His eyes, would actually send His own Son, that God Himself would come and die for the sins of those that have offended Him. Um, it's the concept of grace, and I think that's a unique concept to the Christian faith, and is really the, the the pinnacle of what the Christmas time spirit of giving and all that is supposed to lead up to. We, we especially Christmas time when we talk about uh, giving gifts for each other and uh, all the fun things that we do, and you know the Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, and you know all the different kind of things that that involve themselves in the wonder of what is an enjoyable holiday. But, um, man, we'd be missing the point if all it was was just that, an enjoyable holiday. It's supposed to be a remembrance of a Savior born to us, like Isaiah 9, 6 says, that this is the eternal um, one, the, count, the wonderful counselor. He is the living God, and he has come so that, that he might die on the cross, that we might have new life. So you mentioned Jesus and us as Christians. I mean, we believe that he is the only way. But I mean, to a person that's an unbeliever, somebody that doesn't believe that Christianity is real, why is Jesus the only way unto salvation? Well, that's an excellent question. I mean, it comes back to, I think, the base understanding of where Christianity comes from. Uh, now, Christianity, and when I say Christianity, I don't mean just anybody that calls themselves a Christian. I'm talking specifically about those individuals that, that submit themselves to the authority of what the Word of God says, the Bible the 66 books of God's Holy Word that we believe are inspired. I mean, it's a testimony to what is truth concerning God and concerning, you know, the revelation of not just himself and his character, but us as his creation and what his desire for us and our eternity is. In other words, if he has a plan and he says, this is what it means to be right in my eyes, then he's the living God. He gets to say that. In much the same way that if I, you know, took a piece of clay, you know, and in Jeremiah even uses the, the illustration of the potter and the clay that the pot can't say to the potter, hey, wait a minute, you know what you're doing? You know, why don't you change the way you're doing it? If God is the creator and he's categorically greater than anything that he's created, you know, that's like me creating something out of clay. You know, I make a little Mr. Bill doll, if anyone's old enough to remember Mr. Bill, you know. Oh no, Mr. Bill. And then the, the funny thing with Mr. Bill is they always like crush him at the end. 
right? They do horrible things to Mr. Bill. Well, if you think about it, if you're categorically greater than what you have created, you have a right to desire your creation to fit into a certain mode of living and of righteousness, a, a, a certain conduct, a certain way. You've created them for a purpose. And if they don't fulfill that purpose, then you have right to deem that unworthy and to cast judgment upon it. And so, in that sense, the person of Jesus Christ, and why he's so central to the message of uh, the Christian faith, is that God has certain set requirements. And God's requirement, even in the Ten Commandments, gives us kind of the general principle. But in the end, the ultimate command, as Jesus puts it, is that we should love the Lord our God with all our hearts, with all our soul, with all our might. In the loving of God, that means the pursuit of whatever he says is righteous, in doing what he says our lives are meant to be, in worshiping only those things that are desirable for him, to the exclusion of anything and everything else, whether they be other world religions, whether it be worldly philosophies, whether they be human-made ideas of goodness. God dictates to us what it means to be righteous. And unless we are in fulfillment of that, um, then we are unrighteous. And the only means of becoming righteous like that is uh, to have the righteousness imputed to us through Jesus Christ's death. So how about a Muslim, or for that matter, someone of any other faith, why are they excluded from the plan of salvation or eternal life? Well, it comes back to what we had said, I think, earlier when we talk about the concept of grace being the central element of the Christian, biblical Christian faith. What grace is, it's a gift. And even as the scriptures point out in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, you can't earn a gift. If you work for something, in other words, if I hired you, um, you know, to, to cut my garden or something like that and I paid you, you know, what I'm supposed to pay you, you know, I don't pay you and then look at you and go, how come you don't even say thank you? You know, there's no thanks to be given. You've actually earned it. And I think in any world religion, you can look and examine it and you'll realize that there is some sense in which you need to work your salvation. You need to earn your salvation. But see, what the scriptures say, and this is why any other religious form or any other religious, you know, pursuit, even, you know, spiritualists, even guys that think of themselves as, you know, um, of having kind of the right attitude, they worship some form of God or whatever, whatever they desire to create. The reason why those things fall short is because God says, no, there is only one way unto righteousness. And that way is by my son. And that's what's attested in the word of God. And everything else then is naturally excluded. And the concept of Jesus Christ dying on the cross, it's really important that we understand that it's not a symbolic death. It's not that he dies and then it kind of makes, you know, gives everybody that sense of, hey, you know, Jesus Christ sacrificed himself for us. We should all sacrifice for one another. No, it's not some humanitarian or some, you know, philosophical kind of a warm, fuzzy feeling. When Christ dies on the cross, the scriptures make it very clear that Jesus, who knew no sin, he became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God through him. In other words, there is an absolute and perfect exchange. We who should have suffered eternal death, right? Jesus dies on the cross to pay not just a partial or a symbolic payment for our sin, to pay the full price of our sins. And so the just paid for the unjust so that we might be justified in the eyes of God. And that's unique. And, and no other world religions can offer that. There is no sense in which in any other world religion, world philosophy, you know, they may be people that are confident 
that they have some right standing with the living God, but there are none that depend purely on the grace of God and that alone, without earning, without working, without trying to make religion um, a means for them to earn salvation. So as a pastor, I'm sure you hear this next question a lot. And it's, well, then how can such a loving God send people to hell for eternity? How does all that fit in with who God says He is through His own Word? Yeah, that is always a a difficult question because of our perspective as human beings. None of us want to hear that there is a place like hell. But there's a couple of things we need to understand. One When we look at the Gospels and we look at what it is that Jesus Christ speaks to more than any other topic, he speaks about hell more than anyone else in all of the scriptures combined. He has an interest in making sure that before he gives you the good news, that he makes it clear what the bad news is. And the bad news is that we have all sinned and offended, not just a strong person. You know, we think about like, you know, like growing up, I enjoyed the mythologies. And you think about the great big gods. If you can relate it to comic books, I think the most powerful guy I remember reading in comic books back in, well, it was back in the day, but no, no, the, the biggest, craziest guy was this guy Galactus. Because Galactus, what he did for a living, literally for a living, was he goes and sets up a big machine on top of a living planet and he sucks in all the life energy and he literally feeds on entire planets. And so, you know, all the superheroes of the world have to combine and kick his butt and do all this stuff. What's See, we almost liken our God to that, to just a capricious individual with you know bad points to his personalities as much as any of us. And we just think of God as just this incredibly powerful individual that's just like us, just, just a lot more powerful. And so he does stuff that isn't right, that isn't, you know, that isn't nice. But we're mistaken because the scriptures talk about our God in a very different way. God is perfect. In fact, um, when we talk about his attributes, we can talk about his attributes unlike we can talk about any other human being's attributes. If you tell me that I'm good, I'm good at the moment. That's probably what you mean. Or I'm good over, you know, over me being bad over the course of a certain period of time. When it comes to God and the scriptures say he is good, it means that he is perfectly and eternally good. He doesn't shift. There is one very significant theological term we use for that. He's immutable. It's what James is talking about, the book of James, when it says that God, uh, that in him there's no shifting shadow or no variance. He doesn't turn. He doesn't change. Not even like a shadow slowly moves across, you know, the ground. God doesn't even change that much. So all of his attributes are perfect. If he's good, he's the perfection of goodness. In us, if we are good, we are good in comparison to maybe some of the guys that aren't good. But God is perfectly good. So when the scriptures say that God is love, he is the perfection of love. But see, we also need to understand that we can't delineate or try to put upon God our concept of love. See, our concept of love is, you know, is Santa Claus. That, you know, he doesn't really give you the lump of coal. He wants to give everybody good presents. and That's all he lives for. He lives for our enjoyment is the way that we sometimes think of God, about God's love. And that's incorrect. God's love is pure. God's love is the perfect love. His love desires of us the best that can come out of us. God's love is not just a feeling, 
but he'd pursue something to its utmost to satisfy that sense of love. That means that in God's love and his perfect justice, according to Romans, how God's love is best demonstrated to us was that in the right time, in the perfect place, Jesus Christ died for our sins. That's God's love. And so at one moment, he both satisfies his justice, which again is not his holiness and his justice. is not like our holiness and justice. We don't just sit here and I say, well, I didn't commit any crime, so then I'm, I'm just. I haven't done anything wrong. God's justice, his holiness, is of such perfection that he needs to mete out. He needs to go and destroy that which is unjust or that which is unholy. And to satisfy both that, which is an eternal attribute of God, and his love, which is also an eternal attribute of God, he sends Jesus Christ to die. God, very God, to die on the cross so that he might satisfy his own requirement of righteousness and holiness. So that when Jesus dies, he can die for my sins. Not just my sins in my past, because all of my sins are future from the cross. But regardless of how I live, he has died for my sins. The mistakes that I make from here on, the sins that I'll commit from now to the day that I die, He died for all of those. And I understand that by faith. And that grace of God, I couldn't earn it. I couldn't do something special to get it. But Him doing that for me and me understanding that and, and accepting that through faith, man, that turns into righteousness. So when we talk about the love of God, the love of God is not all of a sudden thrown out the window because there's a concept of hell. Quite the opposite. Because there is the reality of God's justice, and if someone sins against him, he sins against an eternal God, not just a big, strong person. He sins against someone that is of eternal nature. And so that sin, that offense, is eternal to reconcile. It requires an eternal punishment to reconcile. Well, he does that, he accomplishes that in the cross. So that now we see the love of God in its absolute fullness. And so... I think it's a misperception to say God's love cannot exist, coexist with His holiness or His justice. And if you emphasize God's love to the point that you don't have a sense of His holiness or His justice, you don't have the God of the Scriptures. You don't have the God of the Bible. You just have something that you made up. And it's not that far removed from Santa Claus himself. It is literally you've created something that you like and you can use unto your good pleasure. And you know you can pray to Him when you need Him. You know, you can bend his will to your will. You know, you hope that he kind of roots for you. You call him the big man upstairs. And you mistreat him because he is not the potter. you the clay. It's quite the opposite. You're the potter. And you've created a God that fits the image you like and the things that you want. And that's not really God. You know, after all this, I know there are going to be so many people that are going to say, well, yeah, you could believe what you want to believe. But that's not what I'm going to believe. What's good for you is good for you. And that's okay, but that's not quite what I'm looking for. I don't believe that. Well, in response to that, I mean, what would you say, why does there have to be absolute truth opposed to subjective truth? That's a difficult question to answer in that we live in a time that is so relative. We relativize everything. I don't know if that's even a word. But, I mean, we do. We, we put everything in compartments and say, well, if you believe that, that's okay for you. If I believe this, this is okay for me. The problem is, is there are some things that we all universally agree are absolute. You know, for instance, 
we all believe that we ought not to murder each other. If we all went around murdering each other, that probably would not do well in terms of society because in the end, there wouldn't be much of a society left except for the one guy who is better than everybody else, right? And so, I think we all agree that there are some things that are of absolute. Now, our desire is to say that we can all do what is right in our own eyes. There's a time in the Old Testament where that really held true. It's a theme in the book of Judges. And one thing you hear in the book of Judges over and over is there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. In Judges is some of the most atrocious sins that you've ever heard about. About a, a Levite who has a concubine and something happens and then he cuts her into pieces and sends her. I mean, these horrifying things that are listed for us there. Relativism is not an answer for anything related to truth. It's, it's the drug of saying, hey, let's all pretend that it's all going to be okay at the end. The problem is, it may be okay or it may not be okay. But what the Word of God says is that there is an absolute God who gives us absolute principles through divine revelation written in these 66 books, which we call the Holy Bible. And if those things are true, it's exclusively true, exclusive against everything else that anybody else might think. And so it's kind of like when I'm talking about things with friends or with uh, relatives and they just kind of feel like, well, you know, you're a pastor, you know, that's good for you. But, you know, what's good for me is good for me. And I'll tell them, you know, that might sound good, but you realize that if you're right, it's not a real big deal that I'm a little extreme. And in the end, we're all going to be some kind of a blissfulness that you think is, you know, out there or whatever. But if you're wrong and I'm right, and it's not me that's right. It's what the Word of God says. If the Word of God is true, then man, you're in a world of hurt. You're in some, you're in real danger. And you might say, well, I don't, I don't hold to the authority of the Scriptures. I don't, I don't believe it's the Word of God. Well, whether you believe it's the Word of God or not, if it is the truth, it's inconsequential whether you believe it or I believe it or how sincerely someone believes it or thinks they believe it. It holds to be truth. And if the living God, as revealed in the Word of God, is the true God of this universe, then man, there is a price to be paid for our sins. And that price can only and finally and ultimately be paid, not by sacrificing animals, not by doing stuff, not by charitable contributions and work, not by you know committing ourselves to philanthropic causes, but it can only be accomplished through faith in Christ and Christ's death and resurrection for us. Well then, the next question would be, how reliable is the Bible and why should I believe it to be truth? Yeah, that's tough. Um, I'd say that the Bible is self-attesting and people would have a problem with that because anytime you have something that claims to be truth, the problem is well, it's self-referencing. And I agree with that whole self-referencing issue, but, but take it in a broader way and look at it this way. And maybe this might uh, help us out a little bit as we think about it. Human beings, I mean, normal people, you know, people we run across every day, they kind of piece together their philosophy of life and what God is and what life, you know, after death should be and all. They kind of piece it together. Where do they get that information? Well, they get it from some friends. Maybe they read a few things, you know, from some thinkers. Maybe they borrow some philosophies from this side, some religious ideas from this side, and they kind of put it all together. In the end... You know, we talked about that whole concept of self-referencing. They themselves are self-referencing. You ask, you know, you ask that friend, 
hey, you think that there is no hell, you think the Bible isn't true, you think that there is a God spirit out there, but he intends good for all of us, and everything's going to work out so long as you're mostly good and not, you know, really evil in this life. How do you know that? And they'll say, well, because I know, because I've studied this and that. But whatever they've studied, it comes back to human writings, to human thoughts, to human ideas that they have compiled in one way or another. In other words, as a human being, it is self-referencing. It is human beings thinking things through and trying to decide what is absolute truth using the ideas and thoughts of other human beings. What I'm saying is my reference or point of view is the Word of God. And I believe it to be God's divine Word given to us. Um, when uh, Peter talks about it in one of his letters in the New Testament, he says that no prophecy is ever an issue of anybody's will. In other words, a human being didn't desire to write something and he wrote it out and then that became the Word of God. But it was men moved by the Holy Spirit. In other words, the Spirit of God literally inspired the Word of God, not made the Word of God feel good, but in the New Testament Greek, it's that term that it is breathed out. It is God literally speaking His divine revelation to us. And so, if I reference that as my point of truth, at least I'm going outside or externally from the human experience. I'm saying there's a truth that's out there in the Word of God that's far and greater than anything that any number of human beings could have compiled. And it's the perfect Word of God. And when we look at it that way, then it gives us freedom and it gives us the ability to understand and to appreciate and to brightly respond to the true and living God. I can't convince somebody that the Word of God is absolute truth. I guess in the end, there is an element that is a faith position, but we have to at least acknowledge that it's not a crazy, it's not a you know shoot in the dark kind of a faith position. It is based on at least the idea that I'm not referencing myself or a whole bunch of other human beings' ideas and just kind of blending them all, drinking it down and thinking that's going to save me. You know, at least I'm going to an external source. Do I like everything that's written in the Scriptures? Of course not. You know, I wish that there weren't so many requirements in terms of what does the Lord really want from my life? It would be nice if the Lord said, you know, as soon as you're saved, you'll be on easy street. Everything's good for you. I'll protect you. And, and He does, in a spiritual sense, He protects us, He cares for us, and He gives us all this abundance. But you almost wish that if you could create a religion, you'd make it a little bit different, Right? You'd have elements in it that are a lot more blessings in this life kind of thing. But the Word of God tells us that in, in terms of our eternal place, um, what God has set and prepared for us in eternity, and a dimension of this life, we live by faith in the Son of God. And it's a blessing, it's a joy, it's rich. It's exactly what you know the Lord has intended us for us to experience. It's not based on what I think it should be. It's based on what the Word of God says it to be. You know, it's that bumper sticker that you say, God's Word says it, I believe it, that settles it. And I think it was one of the pastors that I liked that was saying that you can remove that I believe it part because if God's Word says it, that settles it. And it doesn't matter if you believe it or not. And that's what it really comes down to. Can I convince somebody? I don't know. In the end, maybe it's faith position. Uh, maybe it's the Spirit of God that makes us understand that it is the Word of God. But at least it's, it's reasonable. It's not nuts that I believe in the Word of God as the holy inspired word of God and absolute truth for our lives today and for eternity. You know, most people, they don't really want to spend the time to read the Bible or, you know, try to find out what it says. 
So if you can, can you give us like an abridged or a summary of what God's Word has to say for us? Yeah, I mean, uh, we're, we're trying to summarize what is all of human history, if we want to look at it that way. But Genesis, the book of beginnings, kind of tells us where everything began. And the Scriptures lays it out for us that God created the universe, that by his, the Word of His power. In other words, and that's something curious about the Word of God, it's not like He takes something and mixes it with something else. What Genesis 1 tells us is that God spoke and it was. He says, let there be light, and there's light. He says, let there be an expanse. And there is. I mean, everything that He creates, He creates merely by the power of speaking. I mean, we don't have power like that. He speaks and things come to exist. So he creates this universe, a universe in which he places the first man and woman, Adam and Eve. And they are unique from the rest of his creation, including all of the animals. Because even as God creates all the animals, he parades them before Adam and he says, why don't you give him a name? And he does. And Adam says, you know what? Or at least Adam thinks to himself, there is none suitable to me. There is no corresponding pair to me even though all the animals seem to have some correspondence one to another. And God, you know, lets him sleep. He creates Eve, and he puts them together in a perfect place called the Garden of Eden. At this point, there's no sin in the world. They literally and physically walk in the presence of God in the Garden of Eden. That is until the serpent, who is the fallen angel, Satan himself, comes and he tempts Eve to partake of that fruit which was forbidden is the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. And upon taking it, she takes Adam and, and he takes of it. I think there's a curious point too, because a lot of times people make a big deal about how Eve ate first and she took of the forbidden fruit and kind of blame it on her. And what the scriptures say though, not just in Genesis, but also like in uh, Romans 5, it makes it clear that God places Adam as the head and as the husband as the sole responsibility for sin entering into the world. And when they partake of that fruit, yeah, do they understand good and evil? Yes, but only by experience. In other words, they are now experienced in guilt and sin. They know good and evil, but not the way that God knows it, perfectly and from a distance. They know it experientially. And so sin enters into the world. Now, from there, we have a whole series of of the men uh, and women of old, old, old ancient times spreading out. They're supposed to fill the earth. They kind of congregate around Nineveh. God disperses them, makes different languages. They go all the way through throughout the world. Then comes a time of Noah. And remember that old story of Noah? I mean, I think everyone's at least familiar with the idea of some ark and animals getting in and out. And Noah, that idea of Noah that during that time... Noah had preached, and you know, it's an important thing, because up to this point, people had been living for an average of 900, 600 to 900 years. Um, Noah himself lives, I think, to, I forgot what it was, 400, maybe it was 600 years old. And so, he had been making this ark according to God's plan and design, and been preaching to repentance that whole time, and none would come to faith. And so, God literally floods the world. He preserves one family, and from that family... Three lines go out, and then all of the world has to repopulate. And through that entire succession of histories, we have uh, from those genealogies uh, Jacob, who later becomes Israel. And uh, Jacob comes along the line of Abraham, who's that man of faith, and probably the first person that is most acknowledged as being righteous 
because of his faith. And Romans and Galatians picks up on that very clearly that how was Abraham justified? He was declared righteous because his faith was reckoned to him as righteousness. And so then faith becomes the central element to how people become right with the living God. And so Abraham, uh, two generations after Abraham is Jacob, who becomes Israel. He has 12 sons, and of those 12 sons, they become what we call the 12 sons of Israel. Israel becomes God's nation, not because he hates all the other foreign peoples, but because they are supposed to be the light unto the world. And that's really the story of the Old Testament, how they are supposed to be a light unto the world of God and what God desires. And so people ask me, well, how about all those weird dietary restrictions? You can't eat things with like cleft hooves and, you know, can't eat shrimp and lobster and things like that. I mean, we like that stuff, you know, like shellfish. We'll enjoy it. Why can't, why, why couldn't they eat it? You know, it is because they were supposed to be separate and different. And God had placed them on this crescent, you know, fertile crescent. He had placed them in an exact location where the rest of the commerce of the world would pass through. And when they had dietary restrictions, when they had certain things that they couldn't do, certain things that they wouldn't touch, certain things that they wouldn't participate in, it was supposed to be a lesson unto all the nations. In today's day, we're supposed to take the gospel and go out. Back then, it's like the rest of the nations came through that fertile crescent and right through that Palestine area and interacted with God's people and what it meant for them to be holy. That's come. There's so much written in the Mosaic Law and the Old Testament Law about how they should eat, you know, how they should do this, how they are to keep the Sabbath. Why do they have so many of those things that in the New Testament that Jesus says, you know, none of those things need to persist? Well, they were they were excellent ways of of demonstrating that separateness, and throughout the history of uh, of the entire Old Testament, all the nations know about Israel's God. He's the God that delivered them out of Egypt. I mean, they all know that God. They get a sense of what God's people are like and who God is and what He's like from seeing their obedience to all of these what we would think is so minutia type laws. Well, so that a nation exists, uh, God finds that, founds that nation, and they eventually have a king. The first king, Saul, is not too good. David, he becomes the epitome of the good king who loves the living God and would do anything for him. But after him, and Solomon, his, uh, his son, does real well and prospers the nation, then the kingdom splits. In the northern and southern kingdoms, after it splits, and this is the time of the prophets. Then the different kings in both the northern and southern kingdom, the vast majority of them, they don't follow the ways of the Lord or act like their father, great, great, great grandfather David did. And it keeps God's word, keeps comparing them to David and saying, you know, they keep sinning. You know, they keep messing around. And so God sends his prophets to say, hey, thus saith the Lord. God says, you guys need to repent. You know, and unfortunately, there are a lot of false prophets at the same time we find out. Saying all this stuff like, no, God wants prosperity for you. God wants it. God doesn't want you to panic. Everything's going to be good. And you guys, you guys are kind of messing around, but it's okay. Well, the next thing you know, God sends judgment to them. The northern kingdom is taken away in captivity by Assyria. The southern kingdom is taken away by Babylon. And that begins what we call the period of the exile. And from that exilic period, when they finally come in, um, in the book of Nehemiah and Ezra and those things, they come back, they reestablish the temple, they reestablish the nation. Um, that's how the Old Testament ends, with this renewed sense of hope that maybe they can get everything going again. But in between the Old Testament and the New Testament, 
the Romans come along and they are like the big and horrifying monster of uh, the ancient world. They, they conquer everything and they hold everything with an iron hand. And when the New Testament begins, you know, they're in a time where they're like so desiring, so desperate for the king to come. And throughout the scriptures, there has been this talk, you know, all the way back in Genesis, when Adam and Eve sin and God declares his judgment on how life will be, that, you know, from here on, Adam, you will have to struggle, you know, with the ground and till to make things grow. There won't be just fruit trees everywhere for you to just live off of. Um, Eve, there's going to be pain in giving birth, right? But in the midst of that, see, he says there will be toil for you, Adam, difficulty and sweat, but you'll be able to bring the produce of the ground. And to Eve, he says, you know, there's going to be pain when you give birth, but there will be the birth of one in the seed of Eve, you know, in the line of humanity that will be able to crush the serpent's head. And, and right there, you start to get the foreshadowing of something to come. And to each one, you know, when Abraham is, is promised that he would have children that would outnumber the stars, outnumber the sand on the sea, when you watch and you follow through that thin thread of this concept of salvation and faith unto righteousness throughout the Old, Old Testament Scripture and into the prophets, then by the time you get to the New Testament, you realize it is that person of Jesus Christ they've been talking about. I like it best what Hebrews, the book of Hebrews in the New Testament says. It says, you know, in the, old, in the ancient days, God spoke in many ways and different forms. He spoke through prophets, through all these different methods. He spoke to us. But in these final days, or in these last days, He speaks to us in the Son. Meaning the Son, Jesus Christ. He's the final revelation of God. And so the New Testament, the first sections, the Gospels, are the, the basically the history of Jesus' earthly ministry. And all of them agree that He was the Son of the living God. And when the New Testament talks about the idea of the Son of, it was understood that that meant that he shared essence with divinity, with, with God himself. You know, in other words, you wonder, well, if he didn't claim to be God, why did they pick up stones to stone him when he would say that I am, you know, before Abraham was, I am? When he says things like, you know, you've said it yourself, that I am the son of God. You know, why do they get all riled up about blasphemy unless it meant that he claimed himself to partake of the deity, that he was, in fact, divine, that he was God. And so the New Testament begins with the gospel accounts of him. And then the book of Acts details how the apostles, after Jesus' ascension, takes the message to the world. And the rest of the New Testament are basically letters that detail how we are to live in the age that we live in. What we are to understand about Jesus Christ and about the Holy Spirit of God the, tri, the triune God, who is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, what that means for all of our lives and how to implement a life that is transformed because of His death on the cross. And then the book of uh, the Apocalypse, the final book, the Revelation, uh, it speaks very specifically of what is to come in the final days of the history of this world before God closes the chapter of all of human history and reopens it and recreates heaven and earth and established an eternally blissful state. And so, I mean, clearly, when you talk about from, from the beginning to the end, there's one central message, and that is a Savior. It is Jesus Christ. And everything that is accomplished at the cross, that Jesus Christ could die for our sins, 
and take our place in death. And the only thing that we, you know, appropriate that wonderful gift by is through faith in Him and Him alone. Not through works, not through, but just faith in Christ. That is the wonderful message of the gospel. And that's the central theme of all of the scriptures. It's what all the Old Testament saints have died in anticipation, hoping to see what this great salvation to come and who this Messiah would be. And all the New Testament saints, you know, some of them saw, some of them testified to, and they all died, went to be with him and are awaiting that final day when he returns and recreates all of heaven and earth and makes it that perfect place that God has intended from all eternity past. You earlier used words such as faith and repentance. Well, what is true repentance? What is true faith? And is it just a one-time thing that you do in your life, or is it something that needs to be continually present in your life? That's a, that's a good question. When we talk about faith, I mean, we did mention how Abraham, he was declared righteous, you know, by faith. God reckoned his faith as righteousness. And so the basis of salvation throughout all the scriptures of faith, even the Old Testament saints, they came and they offered sacrifice. Now that people say, well, you know, weren't they saved because they offered and they killed animals and stuff? And the answer is no. In fact, it's a resounding no. You look at the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, and the author of Hebrews makes it clear that you can't offer enough animals and spill enough blood to cover your sins forever. Otherwise, they would have had to stop sacrificing. Because at some point, one animal, two animals, whatever the number, they could have stopped. But he says very clearly that they offered it year after year after year. Why? Because there was never final satisfaction. Until the blood of Christ, the final Lamb of God, when He died on the cross, it was the just for the, it was perfect and full payment. Now, when we look at this idea of trusting in such a perfect and full, full payment, we mean faith not in the sense of just intellectually kind of, you know, appreciating that. Take, for instance, uh, the, the word to know or the idea of knowing God. Right? We talk about what is so blessed about uh, being a believer is that we might know God. And you might say, well, what's the big deal? A lot of us know God. Well, it depends on how we mean the concept of knowing God. And I don't mean knowing like I know you. Right? I may know Gabriel and I may know, you know his approximate height and weight. I may know something about him but if I just know him from that, from statistics and just external observation, that's different from saying that I know him. And when I say, hey man, I know him, I almost implicitly say that I trust him. And that's what faith comes to. Faith is the position not just of intellectually recognizing that there was a historical Jesus, that there is probably a God. What faith is, is the knowledge or the experiential appreciation of who that person is. And implicit in that idea is that when you say, man, I know God, I mean that, you know, that I know Him and I trust Him. Uh, probably best illustrated in the scriptures when Jesus in, in John 10 talks about the Good Shepherd and He says, I'm the Good Shepherd. And He says, the Good Shepherd know His sheep. He says that the sheep hear His voice and they know Him. And He doesn't mean that the sheep hear their shepherd's voice and they come and they follow Him out of danger because they go, hey, that voice is familiar. I think I know it. He means that they trust Him. That's the relationship. And so faith then is a relationship of abiding trust. It's not something that you could trust in someone at one point and then walk away from. 
Genuine repentance is an acknowledgement. It's not just acknowledgement. It's an agreement with what God says concerning sin. If God says these things are sin, it's saying that I agree with God. When I came to faith, um, when I repented from my sins, it was me saying to the Lord, Lord, you know, I realize I can't save myself. And I realize my sinfulness requires an eternal payment. I can't pay that. So, I am bound to trust by faith in your son's sacrifice. I, I trust, I believe, and I depend upon his sacrifice for my sins. If I genuinely confess my sins to the point that I acknowledge, and not just acknowledge intellectually, but that I agreed with God that, w- that my life, my lifestyle, my heart's desires, they were all sin and only sin, then I'm forced to um, not just say that I am a sinner, but to believe it so that I repent or I turn away from that sin once and for all. Does that mean I don't, I don't mess up or I don't remember how to sin so I fall? Yeah, there's the slipping back, there's the struggling with, and there's the, the fleshly um, desires that wage war against the Spirit. But nevertheless, every genuine believer, if they've come to the position that they can say truly, I can only trust in, in Jesus Christ's sacrifice for eternal life and for salvation. And I agree with God about what it means to be a sinner and that I can't save myself. If we honestly and genuinely believe all that stuff, then our confession, what we say and what we believe will be one and the same. And it means that for all of our lives, that repentance will hold true. And for all of our lives, we will depend on God's grace through faith in the same manner in which we began that Christian journey from that first day. And that's what faith is. Um, Romans says if you believe um, in your heart and you confess them with your mouth, right? It is, it is both what you verbally acknowledge externally, but, but also what you believe in your heart. And it's all of that put together. So it's the rest of your life. It's eternity. It's not just something that, you know, it's hellfire insurance. You know, if you say a certain prayer, if you, you know, do a certain thing, if you walk down the aisle or throw a pine cone into the fire, everything's okay. It's not a singular act or a religious observance. It is about giving our whole hearts over in acknowledgement and agreement about our sins and then saying, I can't save myself. I will trust only in the blood of Christ that His death can be substitute for my death and I'll live unto the glory of God and fulfill the purpose for which I've been created. To be a man, to be a woman, to be an individual that wants to live for the glory of the Lord now and for all of eternity. Just exactly as God had intended from all of creation in the past. You know, unfortunately, this is all the time that we have today. And so we'd like to thank Pastor Nam for his time and discussion. Um, is there anything that you would like to add before we close today, Pastor Nam? Well, I think if there's anything that I would like to make sure people understand is the simplicity of the gospel. And maybe there's some individuals as they think through this and uh, as they've been thinking about the things of Christ, they've come to the realization that they would like to be right in a right relationship with the living God. You know, it comes to the simple reality of just acknowledging your sin and acknowledging your inability to save yourself by any amount of righteous deeds. And instead of depending upon yourself and your human ability, trusting solely in the blood of Christ and His death on the cross for your sins. 
So acknowledging your sins, repenting from them, putting your faith in Christ's death alone, and then coming to the living God. And and if you want to do that, you don't need a special occasion. You don't need to you know do something miraculous. You can ask the Lord to save your soul and to become the Lord of your life any time that you want. And if you do that, then I encourage you to not only do that in your own heart, but then to hook up with the church, a local fellowship, as well as to read the scriptures. Find out more and more about this living God. May it not be the end, but the beginning of a lifelong pursuit in trying to bring glory to the living God. And I, I hope, and our prayer would be that, you know, just some of the things that we discussed have triggered some thoughts, some convictions, and maybe made a difference in causing you to desire to live for the glory of the Lord more closely. So that's all the time that we have today. Our next topic will be about the person and character of Jesus Christ as Easter approaches. Until next time, God bless and may the grace of Jesus Christ be with you all. This has been a presentation of IBC Topics, an audio discussion ministry. Emmanuel Bible Church is located at 12118 Pacific Avenue, Los Angeles, California, 90066. You can also find us on the web at www.ibcbible.org. Our worship time is every Sunday starting at 845 in the morning. Please join us. Until next time. Thank you for listening.